Hey guys, this is David, aka Bible Scribe. Thank you for checking out my podcast today. I just wanted to remind you that I also have a YouTube channel and a blog. This podcast is a rebroadcast of my YouTube videos. You can find my YouTube channel with an easy search for Bible Scribe. My blog is www.bible-scribe.com, and there you can find notes from my broadcasts and contact me directly using the contact form on that site. So please find a way to connect with me or my other listeners, and God bless you in your search for the truth of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Now to the podcast. Hey guys, and welcome again. It is Bible Scribe. So good to be back with you. How can we know that Jesus' second coming has already happened? Now, this is a question I got from a viewer. And as you know, I like to answer these questions sometimes in video format because um, I think sometimes when I hear these questions, I feel like, you know, and you may, if you've seen my channel, other videos, you may say, well, you've already answered that question. Well, that's true in a sense, but I think sometimes it's good to answer these questions from different angles, different perspectives. Everybody learns in a different way. And so, uh, you know, in the case of this question, how can we know that Jesus' second coming already happened? Uh, it's more, it's going to be more of a cyclopic answer than some of my other videos have treated this topic. And uh, what I mean by that is like, if you know the word encyclopedia, when you go to the encyclopedia, you're looking at a single term and looking at a thorough definition of that term. Well, if you've ever heard of the word cyclopedia, a cyclopedia is more of an outline of a large body of text. Uh, and so that's kind of the way this answer is going to occur. So I've gone through a lot of this material in my other videos, but I've never gone through all of it in a single video in more of a summary format. And so this is a way we can answer this question uh, and, and span a lot of different material, but we won't go into detail into much of that material. And so I like to do that. I think it's important because everybody thinks a different way and learns a different way and they came about their you know, perceptions of the scriptures and the ideas of God and Christ a different way. And so it's important to hit all these different angles and talk about these things, um, sometimes repetitively. But uh, I don't think this video will be repetitive. I think this is going to be a good summary of all the material that I've gone through on this topic, or most of it, in my other videos. So the question, how can we know that Jesus' second coming already happened. First of all, when I hear someone ask this question, or any question about the second coming of Jesus, I, I start out by thinking immediately, well, I don't ever use the phrase second coming. I, I, in fact, I will never use that phrase again myself, except to communicate with people who, who see a second coming in the scriptures. Um, and so, I wanted to do a, a little exercise with you on this, and I have a, a tool that I use, in fact I wrote this tool, to let me search through the scriptures very easily. Uh, there's a lot of them out there, but this one is uh, 
I have tailored this to search through the Bible and other old writings, uh, and I actually may make this thing public at some point for people like you guys to use too. Um, but when we do this and we look for the word, and I am searching the King James version of the scriptures, but look for the word second coming, and we can scroll down. You see there's no, there's zero search results. There's no phrase second coming in the scriptures. So, and you know, I'll give you that. So we'll go and we'll search for like, when maybe Jesus says in some places, my coming. So let's look for that. So when I search for that, I do get four results in the scriptures. But here they are. One of these phrases is from Genesis. That's not Christ talking. And then Matthew 25, 27 and Luke 19, 23 are both the same parable in the New Testament. When Christ is talking about a parable. And this is the parable of the ten talents where he says, the master says to the servant, I should have at my coming received my own with usury, meaning with interest. He's talking to the wicked servant. Now this is a re reference to Christ's coming, but it's in this parable. And so again, we do see this as a reference to Christ's coming. He doesn't say it's his second. So let's keep looking here. Philippians 126, um, now, this is not Christ speaking. This is Paul, and he says, my coming to you. He's talking about the next time he visits the Philippian church. So you can see when we searched for my coming, we only got this one hit, really, in this parable by Jesus Christ, talking about his own coming. So then I go up and I'll do a search again. This, is, uh, this one, I think, is, is going to be better. Let's do the, the words, the phrase, come again, because I do believe he says that quite a few times. And now we've got 53 hits on this in the scriptures. Now we're gonna have to skip through a lot of these because a lot of these are in that phrase, come again, is in the Old Testament and it is not talking about Christ at all. It's just part of the historical narrative, different people talking about when they had to go a place and come again. So we're going all the way down here. We're skipping most of these results, hate to say it. Now finally in the New Testament, Mark eleven twenty seven. Now this is not Christ or him talking about his coming. Uh, Luke ten thirty five. Uh, this is not Christ's coming. Fourteen three. John fourteen three. Now this is Jesus Christ saying, "If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there may you be also." Okay, so this is Jesus Christ saying he's coming again. Uh, and so, you know, people that talk about the second coming, supposedly, I guess this is what we talk about. We would say this is Jesus talking about his second coming. All right. So then John 14, 28, he says, again, you've heard how I said to you, I go away and come again. Because this is what Jesus was telling his disciples. I'm, I'm going to leave you and go to the Father and then I'll come back again. Uh, if you love me, you would rejoice, because I said I'll go unto the, my Father, for he is greater than I. Acts 22, this come again is not Christ. It's not talking about his coming. 2 Corinthians, this is not Christ. Uh, this one either. None of these. And not that one. So, uh, you can see, even when we search these phrases, we just get very few hits. Uh, there's definitely nothing that Christ says about a second coming. He says, I'm coming again to the disciples. Uh, and, and then I would also say that if you look through the Old Testament, 
you will never see any evidence of a second coming. Meaning, you won't see a prophecy that says that God is going to send the Redeemer or send the Anointed One or the Messiah. And then in the same prophecy, he says, and he will come again much later, many years after, or anything like that. Uh, there is none of that. It's one coming. And, and it's always that way in all of Old Testament prophecy and in the teachings of Christ. Whenever he's talking about his coming, he's talking about something in the future from when he was teaching around 30 AD. So it's in the future from 30 AD, his coming. In fact, he doesn't talk about his birth as his coming. Neither does the Old Testament talk about his birth necessarily as the coming or the, you know, all the eschatological things wrapped up in the coming of Messiah. And so uh, we just have to be careful. I, that's why I don't personally use the words second coming, except to talk about people who in their idea or understanding that's what makes sense to them to describe it that way but I don't use that phrase myself because I believe the Old Testament prophets all pointed at his coming and Jesus speaking teaching all talked about his coming which was the same event uh, and so I just don't use the phrase and you can see when we search scriptures we don't find it so uh, I will say that I did think though of uh, Christ's ascension. And so here in Acts chapter 1, he says, uh, when they were gathered together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. See, Jesus had been preaching the kingdom the whole time to the disciples, and they thought as he took them to this place where he was going to ascend that, that that was possibly the time, but it wasn't. And Jesus said unto them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own power. But you will receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you will be witnesses unto me in all the earth, essentially. And when they spoke these things, he was taken up. And then an angel said, uh, Why do you marvel? This is the Je same Jesus which is taken up for you, and he will come in like manner as you've seen him go. And the like manner was in the clouds. Okay? There was no other like manner. He's talking about the way you've seen him go, and the way was, he went with the cloud. That's the way he will come, okay? It'll be in the clouds. Alright, so that to me is the only types of things you can say, you know, that's pointing at what people call Jesus' second coming. All the prophets pointed at it. Jesus' teaching pointed at it. Even this angel, when Jesus ascended, said, when he comes, it's going to be in the clouds, just like he's going up. It's going to be in the clouds. So that's the only stuff about the coming. Now, Jesus did talk, of course, about his coming specifically in the Olivet Discourse. And this is the main part where we're going to see Jesus talk about his coming and what was going to happen, what it was going to be like. Because the, the, the disciples asked him, it says, as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? Meaning, when is he coming back? When is he going to do all these things he's talked about, all the signs and everything? Uh, and so, this is the Olivet Discourse. Now, most people that don't think that Jesus' coming already happened, look at this. And I remember I used to think this. Like, I would read through 
this part about the destruction of the temple because Jesus said not one stone will be left on another on the temple. Uh, and then the false Christs. Uh, but I remember studying from other teachers and, you know, premillennialism and dispensationalism, and they would say, well, this passage, he's saying some things, and then the rest of the things are for the future future, like 2,000 years out, 3,000 years, whatever, in our future now. And they would take this passage in Matthew 24, and they would break it up, and they would say, there's a spot in here, and I'm going to probably botch it, but there's a spot in here where he stops talking about their time in the first century, and he starts talking about the future, way in the future, thousands of years in the future, when he, quote, comes back for his second coming, right? And so I don't know if, I can't remember if that is after he talks about the false Christs or if he talks about the witnessing to nations. It's got to be before, I think it's got to be before the witnessing to all nations because the dispensationalists and futurists say that, uh, you know, that's the trigger for when he comes back, right? The, the gospel has been preached to every single people group on earth, right? <laughs> on planet earth. <laughs> and um, so, you know, people break this thing up but this is one narrative this is christ's speech to the disciples teaching them about his coming about what's going to precede it what's going to happen and so we as we look down through it i'm not going to read it all to you but he said there will be false christs and guess what when i read the book of josephus the historical writing of the first century called uh the wars of the jews there's many places where it talks about people that come in the jewish nation claiming to be a prophet or a special teacher or, or a, you know, a Christ, essentially, a Messiah-type figure, and they would lead people astray. That talked about some leading people out in the wilderness and then robbing them. You know, I mean, there's different stories in Josephus about exactly that thing, false Christs. And then there's also Simon Magus in the first century who claimed to be Christ himself and used his magic to draw people away from the teachings of the real Jesus. Um, and he actually is uh, even more significant than that. You can see that in some of my other videos on the beast. Um, then there's the witnessing to all nations. Now, you know, like I said, futurists, dispensationalists will take this and they'll say, well, this is, you know, we haven't preached the gospel, Jesus Christ, to every nation on earth yet. There's still people groups in deepest, darkest Africa and the Congo and these places that haven't heard about Jesus, so Jesus can't come back yet, you know, because this says, you know, it'll be preached into all the world. Well, the problem is with that statement, the word world here is the inhabited earth. It's oikumene in Greek. It doesn't mean the globe like we think of now. Uh, and the other thing that's funny is that in Romans, Paul says, as of now, which would have been in the book of Romans when he wrote that about 55, 60 AD, as of now, he says, we have now preached the gospel to all nations. But the people who believe this is future don't associate that verse with, I guess, what it's saying, which is that the gospel had been preached to all in the inhabited world at that time. The gospel had spread through all those nations, all the nations. And so... 
that's two things that Christ said would accompany his coming that we have evidence of in, in history. Then the abomination of desolation. Now, uh, what's funny about this is people who know the, the prophecy in Daniel, uh, chapter 9, I think, where it talks about the abomination that makes desolate. And there's, you know, you read different translations, you get different wordings there and phrasings. Uh, and then if you go to the Hebrew, it says something totally different. <laughs> and, um, but the thing that's funny is you get here to Matthew 24, people see this. They say, when you see that abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet in the holy place. So they think, oh, there's going to be, you know, just like Antiochus Epiphanes, there's going to be pig's blood and carcass scattered all over the temple. And they're going to defile the temple. And this hasn't happened yet since Antiochus Epiphanes before Jesus Christ. The problem is, and you can see right here in this version I've used, uh, the Olivet Discourse is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so if we go over to the Luke version of this, uh, what, what verse did it say? Luke 21, 20. Here we go. The same parallel verse in Luke says, When you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the de desolation thereof is nigh. And so we can tell by the testimony of Scripture, the multiple testimony witnesses, that when we put them all together, it makes sense. This was the Roman armies coming against Jerusalem in the first century, and it happened in 70 A.D. And so, yet again, another one of these signs that Jesus talked about in the Olivet Discourse, yet another one, is specifically mentioned and talked about in our, in our history, in the history books. And again, that's in Josephus' Wars of the Jews. It's also, uh, you know, of course, the story of the destruction of Jerusalem and the armies surrounding it, that's in Cassius Dio, it's in Tacitus. All these first century historians record all these things we're talking about and I'll show you that in a minute I've didn't done that in other of my videos um, and given a full timeline so I encourage you to search that out um, perhaps I'll try to put all the links to the relevant videos in the description for this one so he says when this happens the abomination of desolation let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains well this makes sense now if the abomination is the war or the armies of Rome, man, you better flee because they're going to destroy the city. Jesus had already said that the temple would be destroyed and no stone left on one another. And so this is why Jesus warned them. And we hear echoes, actually, as I've read through the New Testament and other Christian writings, we hear echoes of this statement right here that the Jews knew and the Christians knew that had listened to Christ. They knew they needed to flee when this stuff started happening, and they did. In fact, there's records of, uh, of Christians fleeing and creating a settlement in a place called Pella. And this is not uh, the, uh, oh, what's that place? The one that was recorded in uh, the stone temple in Raiders of the Lost Ark or Indiana Jones' Last Crusade. This is not that, that place. This is a, a little province in the wilderness of the Jerusalem area called Pella. And there is a, um, evidence that a Christian group, you know, immigrated there right before all the uh, armies started coming into Jerusalem because they were seeking shelter. This was a crazy time.
And then uh, Jesus continues in the, the Olivet Discourse, talks about his return, that after the tribulation of those days, well, tribulation, and this is not some capital word, tribulation. This is tribulation, meaning you're going to be tried. There's going to be testing. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. And so, like it spoke of in the passage before, the, those armies were going to come. It's going to be, there's going to be a, you know, you're going to be persecuted, especially if you're a Christian, you're bold about who I am, Jesus says. And, uh, there was a tribulation, and it says the sun would be darkened, and the moon would not give her light. Well, what is so awesome is when you read those histories, like Josephus, Cassius Dio, Tacitus, and again, I'm going to show you this in a second in the whole chart, you see that these events occurred in the history books. There was eclipses all through the time just before 70 AD and leading up to it. There was multiple ones. There was... You're going to see in a second some of the crazy signs in the heavens that occurred. It says, the moon would not give its light, stars would fall from heaven, the powers would be shaken. The powers of heaven, meaning the luminaries, the, the angels, uh, all these different things. This was a very spiritual happening and event. And then would assign the, up here the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Well, it's funny, Josephus records that a star... A supremely bright star appeared in the heavens in the 60s time frame AD and stayed in the sky for a year or more. Uh, a star that looked like, the way it shined looked like a sword. But I think it's interesting when you think about that. He wasn't as aware of, Josephus wasn't as aware of the cross as we are because uh, we understand what happened to Jesus and the narrative. But doesn't a star that shines and looks like, you know, a, a sword with the hilt at the top and the the blade pointed down also look exactly like a cross? And I think that could possibly have been what the sign of the Son of Man in heaven was. Josephus, looking at it from a very a Jewish perspective, he saw a sword, but it looked like the cross. And the Christians would have noticed this and understood this. Josephus was not a, a Christian. <laughs> But not only Josephus records that star, but these other historians as well. So we know all this happened. He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. There were all sorts of weird sounds heard at this time. Uh, and then people actually recorded, Josephus records, and some of the others record, seeing angels running through the clouds in heaven over Jerusalem at this time period. I mean, it... You know, before I studied this stuff and started to realize the miraculous events like that, I, I guess I just didn't realize, because I didn't know, that the, the first century was full of that kind of thing. I, and I thought to myself, man, that's as miraculous as the crossing of the Red Sea, the pillars of fire, you know, Elijah and God bringing fire to burn the prophets of Baal, uh, Elisha or Elijah also going to heaven on a fire chariot, all these different things. You know, I felt like as I read and learned about the first century, I thought this is every bit as miraculous as everything else I'd ever been taught. It's just that it happened after Christ's coming or at the time of Christ's coming and after the narrative of the New Testament and Old Testament. So we didn't, it just wasn't recorded the same way. It wasn't recorded the same way. But, when we read our history books, 
which most people don't pick up and read the histories of the first century. And I mean by that, Josephus, Tacitus, Cassius Dio, mainly. Uh, but when you read those, you see so much miracle and so much power of the hand of God. I literally was, it brought me to tears multiple times as I read through these things and understood that was the things he prophesied. That was what it was. Uh, continuing through the Olivet Discourse here, he talks about the fig tree. He says, be ready at any hour. Now, he's saying this to the disciples. Be ready at any hour. So, why would we then apply that to the year 2020 or 2021 or 2030 or any 2070? That's not what he was talking about. He was talking about that time. He says, as the days of Noah were, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And by this, he means it's going to be sudden. People weren't really going to be looking for it or expecting it. And I just think it's interesting now. I wanted to jump over um, to a few things, but we also need to, because this is pretty much the end, the rest he's talking about uh, kind of principles. You don't know what hour your Lord is coming. He's speaking to the disciples. He's just saying, watch and be ready. He says it over and over again, watch and be ready. Because, and you know, why would he tell the disciples to watch and be ready? Because they were sitting in front of him. He was standing there teaching them because they had asked the question. And he said to them, you watch and be ready because all these things are going to happen. They're going to come upon you. Now, if he had said that to them and meant people in 2020 or 2021 or 2025 or 2030, he would have been a liar. And you have to, then you have to, at some point in the study, come to that realization that if Christ said the things he said, which, you know, all of us as Christians will agree that Christ said these things, but you really, and I did this before I started to understand this stuff, I, you really make an effort to stretch it to mean what you think it means, right? Whereas if we just pretended we were a disciple sitting in front of Jesus and he said these things to us, you have to ask yourself, how would you understand them? And how would you act upon them? Well, they went out looking for these signs and being ready and watching for the hour to come because they knew it was going to happen in their lifetimes, and he even said that, he, Jesus says that it's going to happen in their lifetimes multiple times in Scripture. Um, and I've gone over that many times in my videos. He says it right out. It's easy to find. So that's really the Olivet Discourse. And, and I would encourage you, if you're coming at this not with the historical understanding of what happened um, and his coming in the first century, then I would encourage you to value this. This is the words of Jesus Christ. Value this over anything else you read about Jesus and his coming. This is Jesus Christ sitting there in front of the disciples after they've asked the question and explaining it. And you need to go to also Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21 because they are the parallel accounts of this exact same speech by Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is your savior, that is where your value should lie. Over anything else in the New Testament, or even the Old Testament, you should value the words of Christ over all of it. So I encourage you, and I've done this before, 
take these passages and study them over and over again. Just Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. See how they relate. See how they each have a little different perspective, but they all are saying the same things. And, and then read them as if you were sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ, having just asked him, what are the signs of your coming, Lord? And he's talking to you. And then you'll start to see it with new eyes, I think. So another thing to me that shows me that Jesus' second coming already happened was the nature that Jesus described for the kingdom of God. And I've got a whole video on the kingdom of God and the nature of it that's an hour long. <laughs> Again, this is the opposite way of coming at it, just summarizing. But the nature of the kingdom of God that Jesus described, his kingdom, it was not physical. It was not supposed to be physical. He said oftentimes it's a heavenly kingdom. Heavenly. It's spiritual. And so... You know, one of the places is even in the Olivet Discourse, but it's in Luke's version, chapter 17, verse 20 and following. And and people read this verse and they come up with a totally different kind of view of it when you don't have this historical viewpoint. But it says, and when he, Jesus Christ, was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God comes not with observation. Neither will they say, lo, here or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is... Now, this is where people have trouble. They say, it says here, is within you in the King James. But this, this verb, intos, doesn't always mean inside, like inside. And that's what most people translate. They translate this as, oh, the kingdom of God's in your heart. Well, that's a very modernized Western way of thinking. He, the, the, the word actually can mean and does mean among you. The kingdom of God is among you. Or I think actually what he was trying to say here is that the kingdom of God was near. It, it's close. It's like among you. He was, he was the one establishing the kingdom of God and he was standing right there in their midst. So number one, he says that the kingdom of God does not come with observation. You're not going to see it necessarily. It's not going to be observed. So this kingdom of God, of course, is, is tied to Jesus coming. And so Jesus himself said, when the kingdom comes, you're not necessarily going to see it. It's not going to be observed. You're not going to, you know. A lot of futurists, uh, premillennials, dispensationalists, like I used to be, we thought that Jesus at some point in the future was going to come down and stand on the Mount of Olives physically and split it in two. And then he was going to walk over to the temple and sit down on the throne of David in the temple. Which is funny because, hmm, now that I think about it, I'm not sure there is a throne in the temple at all or ever was. But that's a whole nother topic. Uh but that's the way we saw it, you know, that I saw it when I thought everything was going to happen in the future. This coming that Christ is talking about is going to be future. I thought, well, there's going to be some time and it's going to be set up on earth. That's what dispensationalists teach, that at some point that his kingdom would be earthly and it would overcome all the nations on earth. Well, it's funny because in the first century when Jesus came, the Jews thought this too. Remember, they thought the Jewish idea of Messiah was someone who's going to 
help them break the rule of the Romans and overtake them. This is why there were Jewish zealots, because they thought that by force, God was going to send the Redeemer to help them destroy Rome, and then that the Jewish nation would be set up as the one nation to rule the world. And so when Jesus came as a humble servant, they didn't get it. Most of the Jews didn't see him as the Messiah because they were looking for that kind of a warrior king. And he was a warrior king, but not in the sense that they thought. This was a spiritual warrior. And uh, so it's just funny to me that we used to have the same problem. Futurists have the same idea. We think, oh, well, for God to fix everything, he's got to send Jesus to the earth to sit on some physical throne and rule, and there's going to be some kingdom that goes throughout the earth and cleans up the mess. Well, <laughs> there's a lot of assumption in that story I just told. <laughs> there's a whole lot of assumption in there. You can't really prove that out directly with Scripture or the prophets. Um, and so, it's just interesting. But uh, just want to bring this passage forward because the kingdom of God comes not with observation. Behold, the kingdom of God is among you. And he's talking about the disciples. He's talking to the disciples. It's among you. So what did he do with the disciples? He taught them. So they would go then preach the gospel to all nations in Acts. And, and the Pentecost is when they did that. The gospel was preached to all nations in their own tongues. That's what the tongues of fire were. It was a very miraculous event. And that was the event of the preaching to all nations. And then those people who heard it went out to their nations and told in their own tongue. And that's how the gospel spread everywhere. Okay, During the time between when Christ ascended and he came back in 70 AD. Uh, then the other passage about the kingdom of heaven is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50 through 57. And this is just uh, this statement right here, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It can't happen. So this is why you know that God's kingdom is not physical, because flesh and blood can't be a part of it. He says corruption does not inherit incorruption, because the physical body and what happens after death is all corrupt. It's corrupted. That's why our flesh wars against us, because our flesh is corrupted, and it goes to perdition. That's what happens with the physical things in this world. You die, you go to Hades, uh, and it's corruption. Down, 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 down. Well, he's got to do something to make it so you don't go down, that something about you can go up and be with him. And that's, he takes your spirit out of that corrupt flesh and gives you a new spiritual body and you go to heaven. And this chapter, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, talking all about this. And I love it. I love reading this chapter. It gives me such exciting hope. He says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We'll all not sleep, but we'll be changed in a moment. At the last trump, the trump will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and all will be changed. Now he's talking about the dead at this point, because he's talking about the dead being raised incorruptible. The dead were corrupt and dying, and they'll be raised. This is what Christ, one of the things Christ did at 70 AD when he came back in the clouds. All these things occurred. 
This corruptible must put on incorruption and the mortal must put on immortality so that we can inherit the kingdom. That's the only way we can get there. The flesh can't go. So when it, the corruptible shall have put on incorruption, the mortal put on immortality, we shall be brought to pass what is written that death is swallowed up in victory. Death was what drags the physical and the soul down to corruption in Hades and hell. And so death being swallowed up in victory means that God has changed that and made it so that you can exit that. The corrupt parts go down to Hades, but if you are one of his children, you are given a new body and you're taken to heaven. It's incorruptible at that point. It can't be corrupted by sin any longer. So death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your sting? Grave, where's your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is law. But thanks to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is was God's his one and only son who made the way by doing these things. He went to Hades. He destroyed, he didn't destroy, he abolished the power of death and made a way. He took the first people out of Hades, by the way. And then he made the way for us as children of his or uh, followers of his and believers in Christ and, and God that at our death, then we get the same thing. Angels will accompany us. They will, our, our bodies will be gone, but our spirit will be immediately and in the twinkling of an eye given a new flesh, a new body that's spiritual, like Christ's resurrected body. And then we will be taken to heaven to be with him. That's what happens at your death if you are a follower of Christ, a believer. And that's how we get the victory over death, because death will take the body, but we it doesn't take us anymore. It used to take people. Adam and Abraham and all those guys spent all thousands of years in Hades waiting for Christ to come back to save them out of it. That is what all the old texts say. The Bible hints at it a few places, but I have other videos on this. But they were all there and Christ took them out. Uh, and there's Christian writings in the first, second century that talk about this exact thing very specifically. Multiple writings. All right, so that, I think, is about the nature of the kingdom of God. It's spiritual. It's not physical. So why would we ever think that our physical bodies are going to be taken up? We're going to, you know, left behind. Don't get left behind. You're going to vanish out of your clothes and go up there. No, this is not what Jesus was talking about. It's not what the uh, New Testament writers were talking about. The kingdom of God is not physical. It's spiritual. So when we die, our physical body is not taken to heaven. We get a new body, and we go to heaven. Now, the other thing that I think of when I uh, am talking about how do I know that the second coming already happened, well, the context in the New Testament and the early Christian writings, too, which I go through many in my other videos, um, the context of all these writings is very now. Uh, they were all talking about Jesus' coming, and they were saying, it's coming. His coming is going to happen and it's what most Christians like are talking about when they talk about the second coming. That's what they're talking about. I guess I guess a lot of people see Jesus' birth and his life up until 30 A.D., where he had his ministry, that as his quote first coming, and then when he comes back as his second coming. Now, 
if, if you don't think that happened in 70 AD and that's way in our future, then I guess that's your second coming. So again, I don't like the word second coming because the only coming I see prophesied is that one that happened in the first century in 70 AD. And it fulfilled all of the prophecies that were about his coming. Uh, but when we read the New Testament, and I've done multiple videos on this, uh, they were all talking about their lifetimes. In fact, there was, uh, I think it's is it Thessalonians, where they, are, they come to Paul and they're like, they're worried for their brothers and sisters who have died already, for their family members who have died already, and they're worried that they won't be taken up with the ones that were still alive when Jesus came. And he says, don't worry, because they will go first. That's the whole conversation. He says, you know, worry not as the pagans who have no hope, but the dead in Christ will rise first. That means when he comes, he's going to take all the ones that had died during the trib trials and tribulations period, which was, it was 30 to 70 AD. It was a 40-year period of wilderness and trials for the Christians. But he said, at the end of that, when I come, they're all going to be taken to heaven. So don't worry about your loved ones who have passed on. Don't worry about them. There's a whole section. I can't remember what, what, um, can't write now. I can't remember what book it is. Um, but I think it's one of the, might as well pull it up. Might as well try. I'm pretty sure it's second Thessalonians. I'm pretty sure, and I typed it in wrong. It's not chapter one. Stand for, and I think it's three. No, it's not. It might be second Thessalonians. I think that's true. Man, this thing is being weird. Let's try First Thessalonians. I just want to do this because I think this verse, if I'm not mistaken, this is one of the main verses that people use. Ah. I'm going to have to search for it. Sorry, I'm forgetting. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, maybe? Is that it? Yeah, that's it. I was close. Yes, this is it. I would have you not be ignorant concerning those which are asleep. Sorrow not as those others which have no hope. For we believe, if we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so them which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, those which are alive and remain to the coming of the Lord will not be going before those that are asleep. When he comes, the, the ones that are dead will go. And this is what it's talking about here. And in 17, it says, Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet them in the air, so we will ever be with the Lord. So comfort one another with these words. This is not saying that at that moment he comes, that everybody alive and dead that's Christian just goes. 
Because at 70 AD, no one alive went up. Nobody did that. There was no mass exodus or rapture thing that happened in 70 AD. That we have, a, like I've said, we have three different good historians that talk about the time period, and nobody talked about. Um, they did talk about some people that had been dead being seen alive, but they didn't talk about anyone alive going up. All right. And so we have no recorded account of anything like a physical rapture of Christians at 70 AD when he came. But this word I, I've realized in my study of the Greek and everything, it says, then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. This word then is not the same as we think of it as an immediate like happening. It's, it actually should be, as you see on my screen here, translated as thereafter. And it is not a time-bound statement. It means afterwards. It's it, we would really say afterwards, but they just didn't translate with that that word back then, when the King James was translated. So it should be afterwards, after the Christ comes and the dead are taken up. Afterwards, we which are alive and remain. And I, I this this is the way I do it because it really should be when we die, we shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. This is how they were getting comforted by these words, saying that you will be with your loved ones after the coming. It's just they're going first. This is what this is talking about. It's not talking about some rapture where you're going to shoot up to heaven and your clothes will all fall down and there will be planes crashing and cars crashing. None of that. This is just Paul giving the Thessalonians comfort so that they understood that their loved ones who died during this tribulation time would go to heaven with Christ when he came and that then you will see them again when you go and you're with Christ after your death. That was the comfort. Otherwise, there would be no comfort for them. But there was comfort because that's how it was going to work. So as we've talked about this whole time, uh, the other thing when I talk about how do I know that the second coming already happened is the histories of the first century, and we've talked about that. I'm going to briefly show you, and this is in one a couple of my other videos. I've done a few because as I've learned more, I've revised this list. But you can see I start here in 51 AD with different sign-type events that are in the historians. And you can see here my legend of this thing. I, I'm using Josephus, Antiquities of the Jews, Josephus, Wars of the Jews, Eusebius, Ecclesiastical Church History, Cassius Dio's Roman History. I also have some stuff here like this from Orosius and Philostratus. And so you can see that I've gone to great lengths to make this a comprehensive type of timeline but you can see starting in 51 AD, there were earthquakes in Rome, Judea. Um, I recorded that Nero's mother was murdered because at her funeral, the sun performed a total eclipse and the star could be seen at her funeral. And then when Nero's dinner was brought to him, lightning struck it and consumed it in fire. I mean, this is crazy stuff. And that's not necessarily part of the prophecies, but I just... The miraculous things that happened in the first century are just crazy. There were earthquakes recorded in 61, Colossae, Hierapolis, Laodicea, and only Laodicea was rebuilt after this. Earthquakes in Crete, Smyrna, Miletus, Chios, and Samos, all the places where Jews were settled. Uh, 
I put in here the uh, deaths of the apostles, but that's not part of the prophecies. Uh, there's a man that runs through the town for seven years leading up to the destruction of the temple, crying, woe, woe, to the city of Jerusalem, trying to call them back to God and to Christ. Uh, the great fire of Rome occurs in 64. In 65 AD, light shines around the temple for about a half of an hour, and the priests recorded this. Star appears as a sword over Jerusalem and lasts an entire year in 65. There were comets that appeared in the sky and lasted over a year. Passover, um, the east gate of Jerusalem, which is a huge heavy gate that takes multiple people to open, opens by itself at one point. There's a point where a virgin cow runs into the temple and gives birth to a lamb in front of the priests. And this is all recorded in Josephus' writings. Angelic armies are seen waging war in the heavens in 65 AD. In June of 65 AD, priests in the temple felt an earthquake and heard voices saying, let us remove hence. Uh, there's earthquakes in 65 in Laodicea again and in Campania. I believe the tribulation actually started in 67 AD. The Jewish high priesthood ceased in that time period. There were three Caesars back to back after Nero committed suicide and they all were like killed or deposed. Um, because of civil war in, in Rome. A comet was seen in 69 AD. The moon was eclipsed twice, and it was only three days apart when this, these two eclipses happened. People saw two suns at once at one, on one day during 69 AD, and one was weak and pale. The other one seemed bright and powerful. In the Temple of Jupiter, huge footprints were seen by soldiers there at the capital. They said the door of the temple had opened by itself, and some of these, these uh, soldiers fainted at the occurrence. Um, the moon is eclipsed in 69 AD at a point, and it appears, appears both blood-colored and black at the same time, and at some points during the day it gave out other colors. And this was just before Vitellius died. He was beheaded, and Vespasian became Caesar, and then sent Titus's armies to Jerusalem to destroy it, as Jesus had, had prophesied. There was an earthquake in Jerusalem accompanied by violent storms, rains, continuous thunders, and lightnings, and Josephus records that this was so violent that they thought this was a sign, that even the Roman soldiers thought this was a sign of some coming destruction event. And of course, it was... God showing the world that this was something he was allowing to occur. And so in 70 AD, we see the temple is burnt to the ground on August 6th. Uh, and the whole e encounter in Josephus is recorded. And uh, it's, it's amazing because of the things that happen. The Roman soldiers, it says Titus was trying to call them back. He didn't want them to destroy the temple or, or the Jewish buildings. He said, let's not take it out on the buildings. Let's preserve that. But let's take it out on these people who are, are essentially Jewish zealots who are fighting against us instead. And let's save the, the buildings. But the uh, Roman soldiers were like driven and they, they did some things that were not, he was trying to stop them. So they burnt the temple. Then they started slaughtering all the Jews. And they, they again, Titus called them back from slaughtering, said, stop, don't do this. He was trying to give the commands, but the, the soldiers were ignoring their officers, and they were slaughtering every Jew they saw. And Josephus describes it as if they were possessed, like they could not stop slaughtering.
and the slaughter was so great there was blood splattering and getting up to a horse's bridles splattering all over the place and just covering the men and the horses and that blood was running down the steps of the temple like a, a waterfall just running down the steps and uh, it was again it's one of those things when you read it you get chills and you're like god how did i miss this thing how did i miss this it's just amazing and so that 70 AD and then three and a half years later, the fortress of Masada, the Roman armies chased the remaining Jewish zealots up to the fortress of Masada and three and a half years later, they just kill them and take out the fortress. And so God in his, you know, fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament, of the upcoming judgment on Israel and the Jewish nation, man, he did it 150%. They, the Roman armies like I said, the tribulation started three and a half years before 70 AD. And during that time, there was trials and tribulations. They destroyed the temple and everything about the temple and in Jerusalem in 70. And then three and a half years later, this is the last week of Daniel, all right? It's the last week, the seven years. The three and a half years later, after the temple was destroyed, all the Jews, the zealots, were slaughtered in Masada. So during that whole time period, his judgment on the Jewish nation was completed. And so I, just to show you that when I'm talking about did his coming already happen, these things to me are, you cannot ignore these things. When I finally read them and understood what had happened, I could not ignore it anymore. I, I couldn't pretend this didn't happen and that it wasn't miraculous. It is so miraculous. And so all the judgments of the Jews that were talked about, culminated in this event all the judgments of the prophecies and you know what all those prophecies are tied to they're tied to the messiah's coming and the starting of the kingdom so you can't detach them and say well god judged israel back then but in the, our future is when he's going to establish the kingdom none of the prophecies allow for that none of them and so these the histories that we've talked about they just paint the picture that God's judgment was complete. That was the day of the Lord, the coming of the Messiah. It all, it all happened. It all happened. The coming that Jesus was talking about was that. He was in the clouds orchestrating and fighting for, the God, for God to do all this judgment, to do all these things. There was even a spiritual war against the fallen angel principalities of the nations that's talked about in the Old Testament prophecies that occurred at the same time, and I've done videos on this too, but Christ gathered those fallen angels, the principalities of the nations, together at the Valley of Megiddo and waged a war against them. That's recorded in Revelation chapter 19. But that was spiritual. You're not going to see that. Those, those were angels, and God, Jesus Christ came with his armies of angels and saints, and they waged war, and he took all those principalities of the nations and abolished their power over the nations. And then who was the new leader of all nations? Jesus Christ himself. He's the king of all. He inherited the nations. Do you remember that phrase? You can look it up in the scripture. Jesus Christ inherited the nations at that time. So many spiritual things happened at that time, but we have a history of physical signs that occurred and accompanied all the spiritual things that happened. The dead were raised. They were taken to heaven. The dead righteous were taken to heaven from Hades at that time. Um, it's just amazing. And um, again, I, 
you know, sometimes I cry when I come to this stuff and realize I didn't understand this stuff. I didn't see it before. But I think the linchpin is number one, the Olivet Discourse, and then reading the histories specifically of Josephus is a good place to start. The other ones are a little harder to get through. But uh, Josephus, Wars of the Jews, tells all of this. Um, and I think chapter, books five and six, if I'm not mistaken, are the, just about the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. So those are the pertinent parts if you didn't want to read the whole thing. But, you know, I encourage you not to limit yourself. And I found this out and God put something in me that caused me to just read it all. I was like, I'm done asking people and listening to people on what they think these things say or, or getting secondhand information. I said, I'm reading it all for myself. And what I found when I did that, I hate to say it, when I, when I did that for myself, I found that almost nothing I had been told was right. Almost nothing. Even by people who had a historical viewpoint. And, and so I encourage you that God will bless you in that effort. If you go to those links to read through all of it, understand it for yourself, he will bless you. Uh, as I feel he did me. Then the one last thing I wanted to mention before we go is when I talk about did the second coming happen in 70 AD in the first century. One thing that I, I fall back on sometimes because, and, and you know, some people will say, well, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring forward the Jewish idea of the Messianic kingdom. That's what I, I'm looking at. And I've studied that too. And some people be like, well, the Jews, those Pharisees, you don't want to listen to them. They were evil. They crucified Christ. Their Talmud is evil. They hate non-Jews. All this other stuff. That's all fine and dandy. But you have to admit, our religion, Christianity, is rooted in Judaism. I mean, if we don't understand Judaism, and I mean, heck, if you don't, want to listen to anything Judaistic, then you should just throw away the Old Testament. But let me tell you, that's a fool's errand because our understanding should, we should know what the Jews thought about these things because they support what Christ did. It's just they got confused, especially after the Babylonian captivity, they became corrupted. All right. So we do understand that, but we have to understand that the Jewish ideas of things, a lot of times, are the root and foundation of the Christian ideas. And one of those things is their idea on the Messianic kingdom. And that is that they truly believe that after, and I have another video on this prophecy, but after 5,500 years that the Messiah was going to come and establish a kingdom that would rule over, uh, that, that would have a millennial period, like the Messianic period of 1,000 years. And so this is a Jewish idea way before the New Testament. This was recorded, you know, and if you look at the Jewish encyclopedia online and the Jewish beliefs of the Jews, they all believed this. They all believed this, that there was going to be a Messiah come and there was one coming of Messiah, not two. And that when he came, he would establish a millennial reign for 1000 years and that that would be and of course, again, like I said before, they got confused, especially after their captivity, and they wanted a Messiah who was going to conquer earth, like conquer the nations physically. 
but that's not what God brought. He conquered the principalities of the nations, delivered the authority up to Christ, and established his kingdom, which is spiritual, as we've talked about. And that lasted, well, the kingdom is said to last forever, but the millennial reign of Christ was 1,000 years. And this was a Jewish idea, not just a Christian idea. So what we find, even though the Jews became corrupted at some point, we find that their original fundamental ideas about these things match what we understand in the New Testament and in the first century and what Christ said. That all matches, okay, if we get to the heart of the matter. So again, to me, that's another thing that shows that the Jews were looking for a single coming. Christ was that, and they were never, they never talked about, and they had all the prophets. They had read all the prophets for centuries, venerated them, kept the writings uh, safe, and and they never talked about two comings. Never. There's one coming. Jesus talked about it. The prophets talked about it. The Jews talked about it. The historians talk about in 70 AD what happened, and it was the fulfillment of the things that were talked about that would happen at the time of that coming, and the signs that Christ said would lead up to that coming. So that's how, when someone comes to me and asks me, how do you know the second coming happened? That's how I know. There's so much evidence that it did, and that the writings in the New Testament just talked to the people because they were worried about it. It was coming. They were scared. They didn't know what happened if they or their relatives died. Would they be saved? Would they go to heaven? What would happen? They asked all these questions, and it's recorded throughout the New Testament, but you have to understand the way we are taught the Bible these days. It's very cherry-picked. It's, you know, I've got a verse over here that says something I like, and I'm not going to read the rest of that chapter because it doesn't really support what I want, so I'm going to pull that verse out and then teach off of it. This is disingenuous because then we're getting a false impression of that verse because there's a whole context there or whatever it may be. And you take an idea of two comings and then you do things like I said. You take the Olivet Discourse and you break it in half and you say that part was for them, this part's for us. Come on, people. I mean, can we please get back to just reading the Bible as it is, understanding who it was written to, the different books, putting ourselves in those shoes to understand from their perspective with a little knowledge of the, the history of the first century, man, it sure, it all comes together in this beautiful picture. I mean, like I said, when I realized and understood these things, started to grapple with the Olivet Discourse and these historians that wrote about these signs and events, it, it, was so powerful it was overwhelming that I had missed something that God did by the might of his outstretched arm as the Jews said in the Old Testament it was that same mighty arm that same outstretched arm that led the Jews led the Israelites out of Egypt and led them through the the sea untouched and unhurt and protected from the Egyptians it's the same outstretched arm that caused the plagues to come against the Pharaoh. That's what this was. I saw in the events in the first century, I saw the same hand that I saw all through the miracles and events of the Old Testament. And uh, it's so powerful and overwhelming to realize that you have been 
You've been hoping in a shadow instead of the real thing. Our hope is in Christ because His kingdom is waiting for us after this life. Our hope is there. It's not in some magical rapture thing. That's you know how many centuries of people, how many millions and millions of people have held that hope of a rapture because it makes them feel better about the end of their life. Like I'm gonna have to go. Maybe I won't have to go through all the pain of death because because the rapture is gonna happen. When the rapture itself, and and I have a video on this, the rapture in and of itself is such a loose ambiguous doctrine it's built around like i said taking a verse here and a verse there some of the verses we showed in this video um you just got to make sure that your hope is in christ and that you will inherit the kingdom at some after your death that's that's what we're looking for in fact the early church fathers wrote about the same thing polycarp um irenaeus all these guys, as you read their stuff, they're they're hoping for the same thing. And they're not thinking they're going to be taken before they die. They're expecting to run the race in a way worthy of the kingdom. So that when they die, they go and they're with God in that kingdom, with Christ. So I think all these things together is why I know that the second coming is not in the future. There's no second coming. There was a coming, Christ's coming, and it occurred. And it was spectacular. I, wish, I, w I don't wish I was there because it was a horrible time for Christians and Jews. And I wish I could see it. I think maybe when I get to heaven, if I ask God, he will show it to me. He will say, this is what happened. And uh, I probably break down in tears because it's probably horrible um but being able to see that event from a spiritual perspective just like john did in revelation and all the things that came with it that valley that battle in the valley of megiddo armageddon which was a spiritual battle with christ and his armies and all the armies of the principalities of the nations at once he judged them the things that happened i i just man so I hope that uh, you've gotten something out of this video. We've kind of taken a holistic approach to the answering this question. How do you know the second coming already happened? Well, there's so many things. There's so many things that point to that. And in fact, it's like everything for me that used to, I thought pointed at something that was coming in our future. I realized understanding it correctly, that it was all pointing at something that those people expected to happen and uh, that it did and that there were all the signs were there all of the things that we you know people don't understand so they project them into the future in fact this is a very common thing i see not just with this but with a lot of prophecy is people that have no understanding of the prophecy or the context of it project it out in the future well if i can't understand that thing they're not saying i won't say this out loud but this is what they they do they take it and like I can I don't understand that it must be in the future. I don't understand uh, the Valley of Megiddo, the Armageddon, blood to the horses brought. It's out in the future. It's out in the future because I can't understand it. Do you see how that works? 
Instead, why don't you take every single one of those things you think is out in the future and try to prove it's out in the future? You'll come back from that journey realizing you can't do it. You cannot prove it. Uh, it's just there's an ambiguity that is allowed if you say it's in the future. Oh, well, then we don't have to prove it because it hadn't happened yet. Well, the problem is that <laughs> we can do that about anything. Like, we can say, we can literally say that about anything and, and get away with it now because of the way people think. The way that they think, you don't have to prove it if it's in the future. What, what is, where does that come from? If we say it's in the future, we're not going to have to prove out that it's in the future. We can just say it's in the future and everybody's okay with that. I don't get it. At least I don't now. I probably used to think that way too. So thank you for joining me. I hope this has been informative and helpful in giving you a broad overview of why the second quote unquote coming of Christ already occurred. Have a great day. God bless you.